Father, anoint this day. We thank you for these who are baptized today. We know you've done a spiritual work in their life. And we pray that, Father, that your word would just explode in their heart in new ways. That they would know you and walk in the fullness of your plan. And today, Father, as we look again to your word, uh, we pray that we would walk in the fullness of your word living in us in love towards others. Guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. I served around 11 years as, as youth pastor. And during that time, I had a lot of opportunities to uh, be around different students of different types and got to be around a lot of athletes and uh, a lot of coaches. And I noticed something during those years. There would, there, there would occasionally be the student who was just gifted physically. They, they were bigger than everybody else, stronger than everybody else, faster than everybody else. Uh, kind of natural athletic abilities. But sometimes you'd be around this kid who was just kind of better, but he, he just didn't work very hard. He just been, didn't put a lot of effort into it. And the coach would try to fire him up and try to get him motivated. But he kind of acted like, I know I'm better than all the other guys on the team. I know uh, how good I am. And he just never really put any heart into it. He never put any effort, uh, real effort into it. And sometimes you'd be around these kids, and they'd actually not even get involved in sports at all. They just didn't have any desire for it. And the coach is kind of like, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's who they are, and there's nothing you could do. Then you'd have this other kid. And this other kid at times would be a kid who didn't have all that physical ability. He wasn't that much bigger than everybody else. Maybe he wasn't faster than everybody else. He didn't just naturally do things. But this kid threw everything he had into it. I mean, everything he had into it. And, and he, he would, he, he's the first one to dive on the floor. He showed up early for practices. He stayed late. He lifted. He did all the stuff that he needed to do. But he was never going to be the all-American athlete. He was never going to be the all-star athlete. He was just doing, doing the best. And occasionally I'd be around coaches and we'd be talking about these kids on the, on the team. And I don't know how many times I've had a coach look at me and say, if I could take the heart in that kid, and put it in that kid, we would really have something. Because the other was wasting his talent, and the other was getting every ounce out of it that he could. You know, I find it interesting that when Jesus is approached by this lawyer, and he's asked about the greatest commandment, and he's told, uh, he asked him, what, what do I really need to do uh, to get into heaven? That Jesus' answer is all about the heart. Jesus didn't talk to him about ceremony. He didn't talk to him about dress requirements. He didn't talk to him about language or even moral conduct. Jesus didn't bring up giving or generosity. He didn't mention service or purity. Jesus' answer was about agape. Jesus said, your heart towards God, you need to love God. You need to have agape towards God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And then he says, and you've got to have agape towards your, or towards your neighbor, that as you want the best for yourself, you've got to want the best for him. 
This is where the kingdom swings. This is where we change from one kingdom to a new kingdom. It's in how our heart beats. On the intangible of the heart, on our relationship and how we see God and our relationship and how we see others. The point that Jesus makes is if the heart is right, all of the rest of the stuff will happen by nature. But if the heart isn't right towards God and towards man, all the rules that you write up will fall short and be less than the full fullness. This is what we've been talking about these last several weeks, is how does our heart beat? We've been looking at this key passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13 that you saw on the screen today. And, and Paul is, is calling to us to be a people who want the best for others, who desire the best for others. Paul points out to the church at Corinth, Corinth that, they must, that, that all things must be done in agape or in love or it's of no use. Now, to understand this fully, you have to understand Corinth. Corinth is this community in Greece that during the wars with Rome has been destroyed by the Roman armies. It was destroyed around 146 B.C., but a hundred years later, Julius Caesar comes along and he takes a look at the strategic location of Corinth. He sees that it would be good for trade routes. It would be good for, uh, for, for, for security. There's a lot of good things about the location of the city of Corinth. So about 100 years after Rome destroys it, Julius Caesar decides to rebuild it. And now what they would do in that time, what Julius Caesar and the Romans would do at that time, is they would, they would begin to, to rebuild this by populating the community with retired Roman soldiers. They would give them property and give them incentives to move there. So you have cities like Philippi and other cities that we read about that were predominantly run and populated by guys who had used to be in the Roman army. What it did is it kept that area loyal to Rome. The people that were there were not people that they, they were now populated in culture by the, the people of Rome, and it transplanted Roman culture and Roman law into that community. And that's exactly what they did with Corinth. By the time Paul arrives there, on the second missionary journey, Corinth is a major metropolitan area. Major trade came through there. It was a major uh, highway going uh, north and south through, through that area. It was filled with Romans and with Greeks and with Jews and with others from parts of the Roman Empire that saw the opportunity to go there and produce trade and to make money. Now, for you and me, growing up in America, it, it's hard for us to imagine a population of people without any Christian influence at all. I mean, our laws, the way our culture has been formed, has been formed on many, many Christian principles. The way we 
see the world, even culturally. We have this cultural bent towards being sympathetic to people with less than us and treating all people with respect. Where in the Roman Empire, in the Greek Empire, if you had more power than, it, than other people, you were better than them. They were less than you. There wasn't a lot of sympathy towards them. It was an, a dominating kind of culture power-wise. Now, in, in Corinth itself, you've got to understand that this, this is a, a majority of pagan people, people without even any influence of Judaism for the most part. And at the center of the community was an area that housed the temple of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the goddess of love. Now, not the goddess of agape. She was the goddess of Eros. Now, Eros is a love that is a sensual love. It's a physical love. It's about sensuality and pleasure and about uh, those kind of attractions in people's lives. And that was what it was at the center of worship in Corinth. And in the temple itself, we're told that it housed about a thousand priestesses. Now, we would call them prostitutes. These were women who were there for one thing, to in temple worship to exercise every kind of sexual activity that any person who came around would want. There were men there for the very same purpose. The worship of Aphrodite was an orgy of sexual expression. It was an, a, a party of drunkenness and in, perver and in perversion. It was all so bad that even the pagan cultures of other communities that didn't know God and didn't worship God, but didn't know him the way we know him, would look at Corinth, and if they thought somebody was morally destitute, they had a word built out of Corinth that they would call them, that they would say they're like a Corinthian. That's how morally destitute it was. It is into this scene of moral destitution that Paul comes to establish the church. He comes in and begins to preach about Christ. He starts in the temple and then moves, or starts in the, uh, in, in the Jewish synagogues and then moves out to the community. And he has pretty good success. This success <clears throat> begins to get into some of the people's wallets and begins to impact some of the the makers of the, God, of, the, of the gods that they would make for people to worship and begins to impact the city. And there's people there that turn against Paul and against Christianity because it's beginning to have an impact on the culture. Paul ends up in jail, but the Roman proconsul finally looks at him and says, this is a religious thing, and lets Paul go and lets him leave. But he is such a, a, a character of controversy at this time that what he does is he says, it's better for the church for me to move on. And he heads off after a while. This has been after about a year and a half. He moves off to Ephesus. He leaves behind a church that has no moral history uh, to lean on. 
They don't have a Judaism background for the most part. They don't have, some do, but not all. Uh, there's not a, a culture of the city of morality. Uh, it's, a, it's a very loose culture. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of tradition. No past with, with God in that sense at all. There's no scripture to leave behind for them to build their lives on. He does leave a few teachers, but the church quickly comes to corruption and to conflict. See, when you don't have the foundation of the Word, it's a warning for all of us. When you don't have a foundation of the Word in your life, when you don't know what the Bible says, you don't have access to it, it's easy for the culture of the day, the sense of right and wrong of the day, to begin to influence the way you live. And this is exactly what go was going on in Corinth. And I want to tell you, in many places in America today, it's what's going on in the church today. People in leadership who've abandoned the Word, and people in the church pews that have abandoned the Word, and now the culture of the day is leading the day instead of the Word of God leading the day. In Corinth itself, even communion has been corrupted. It's now become this drunken, ex gluttonous expression of, of pleasure through alcohol and through food that gives those with all the more and those without less. And it's a destructive moment. Now, you gotta you've got to understand in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has been speaking to many of these issues. He's been talking about them. And now he comes to the very aspects of worship itself and what's going on in the church. And he reminds them that before, they were led by deaf and mute idols. Uh, things that they created by their own hands. They can't hear. They can't speak. They are man-made. But they've been led by them. What the indication here, what the understanding here is, is that this has become just de an open door to demonic activity. And so there's been this uh, wild expression, uncontrollable expressions inside the city of Corinth that has been led by demonic activity, even to the point of there being... Uh, what we call tongues, except they were demonic in nature and demonic in their, in their proclamation. So he's telling them, listen, uh, a person cannot say by the Spirit of God that Jesus is not Lord. If they're saying that, they're not of the Spirit of God. That's of another spirit. How Corinth has taken that is this has made them very open to spiritual expression because they've seen this in, in, the, in, in the worship of their past. They are very open to spiritual expression in this kind of a way. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is speaking exactly to that point and what's right in order and what isn't in order. And he's bringing correction to how they, how they manifest. They have put this point where a person who has these kind of gifts is now 
a person of authority. So you see, the culture of the day is saturating the new church. The church in Corinth is in crisis, and many of them don't even know it because they don't have this foundation. It's, this, it's in this point that the letter that we call 1 Corinthians is, is, is aimed. He's answering questions, and he's dealing with things that he's heard. He's trying to put the church back on solid ground. So he spends a good deal of time talking about morality, what's right, what's wrong, what you can do, what you can't do, what, what separates you from God. He's trying to put moral order back on the table. He talks to them about communion and how communion is supposed to be expressed and why it was given to us and how we express communion in a right way. And he, he talks about that and many, many times in the church today. We use the passages out of 1 Corinthians to remind ourselves of why communion was given to us in the first place and why we're doing it because he makes this clear presentation about the purpose of communion. And then in chapters 12 and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts. This is what we're talking about right now on Wednesday night. About spiritual gifts and how they're supposed to be used and what they are and the proper order of them in our life and the proper benefit of them in our life and what it really says to us as a whole and how to exercise them. And right in the middle of that, we find chapter 13. And in chapter 13, he explains to them, listen, in all of these things that I've been talking about, in all the things I'm going to talk about, if, if your actions aren't motivated by agape, by a desire for the best for others, if they're not motivated by love, not eros love that they're used to hearing about, but agape love that he's telling them about, then all of the efforts are meaningless. Now Paul has to get in detail about love. He has to explain to them clearly because of their concepts of love. And that's, that's what we've been doing for these past couple of weeks because America, in many ways, is in the same kind of boat when we hear the word love. We get confused about what it means until we dig into 1 Corinthians 13 and discover exactly what God means when he tells us you're to love your neighbor as yourself, you're to love God with all of your heart, you're to love your enemy, you're to love your friend, you're to love the stranger, you're to love everybody. He's having to explain exactly what that means to us. And so we've been looking at, at, at some of these things and, and talking about the call to be patient and the, the call to be kind and not to be arrogant or rude and to not be easily angered and to keep no record of wrongs. We've been looking at, at, at all of these uh, meanings because Paul has to get in the detail. Now we come to one of the hardest acts of agape. We come to an act of agape that our culture today would tell us if you act this way, you're not acting in love. That if you do this, you're not being loving, you're being bigoted and you're being judgmental. 
And yet right in the middle of this passage, Paul explains to us how we're supposed to deal with people who are doing the wrong things. And the word wrong there is about evil things. And here's what he says. He says we have to confront it. We can't simply ignore it. Paul says love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The culture of the day was built around power and was built around pleasure, which was celebrated in that world at that point in time. And now that tendency to push towards power and towards pleasure was showing up in communion. It was showing up in the use of giftings. It was showing up in the moral actions of people who called themselves Christians. And Paul at one point tells us something that is so culturally world-shaking even inside of the church that it blows our mind. He tells us at one point, listen, listen, if there's a guy who calls himself a believer and they act this way, you're not even to eat with them. He says, I'm not telling you not to, to, to judge those outside the church. What do you expect them to do? They're outside the church. They're going to act any way they want to act. But you get somebody in the church and he's being sexually immoral. He's getting drunk. He's being power hungry. Call him to account. And if he doesn't repent for the sake of his soul, don't even hang out with him so he knows he's under condemnation and he needs to repent. Boy, is that a tough word? And right here he tells us he tells us that we can't rejoice with wrongdoing because it's, this is creeping in the church. Listen, whenever you take the love of God to agape God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and you take a love for your neighbor to want the best for your neighbor out of the equation of purpose, when you take it out of the equation, it's, that, that's, that's no longer the purpose. My, my purpose is no longer to be pleasing to God, and my purpose is no longer to do what is right by my fellow man. When I take that out of the equation, what I'm left with is power and pleasure for purpose in life. That's what things begin to get summed down to. What, what makes me feel good, what makes me get authority, how do I serve myself? And I can sit back in silence while those around us are headed off the wrong direction. We are called today to make sure that our sense of purpose is founded in a love for God and for mankind, not in power and pleasure. And when I want to be pleasing to God, and I want what's best for my fellow man, when I see someone, know someone, doing what will separate them from God, keep them from God, destroy their eternity, I'm required to speak up. 
Now listen, moms and dads, hear me. It's easy to fall into this trap. Our culture pushes us towards this trap, even in raising our children, to be actually pursuing power and pleasure for our children and teaching them that that's the way to purpose and life and wholeness in life instead of teaching them that to honor God is the power and is the place of purpose in life and to do what's best for others is the purpose in life. So mom and dad, I would, I would call you today to examine your decisions. Let the Spirit convict you. Why are you doing what you are doing? Why, why, what's leading the decisions you're making for your children? What's leading the calendar? What gets put off and what gets put in first place? What's the priority? What's secondary? In your decision making, why do you want them in the places that you want them? Why are you getting them to the places that you're getting them? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? What is motivating your decisions? Because it's easy in a culture that's aimed at power and purpose for, for purpose and pleasure for purpose to subtly be slid into decision making because our flesh is longing after the wrong thing. Why are you spending what you're spending? What is the purpose? We cannot let the culture of the world impact our, our decisions. Now here's the other side of it. Another part of it. Many are in danger today. Many Christians are in danger today of not really loving others because we fall into this trap of our culture of rejoicing with wrongdoing. The culture tells us to accept everything. To bring, to say every, everybody's whim is their whim and what they're doing is okay. Listen, if we know, because we paid attention to the Word, we have the foundation of the Word. If we know that an action is going to hurt someone in the long run, how can we love them and be silent? How can we rejoice with them when we know that their decision is going to be harmful. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put some legalistic chain of control on your life. I'm trying for, for, for us to understand that there is wrongdoing, and it's very clear. Listen, when the Bible says, thou shalt not lie, there's, it's, there's no stuttering there. There are things that the Bible says are absolutely evil and wrongdoing. And when people act in them, and the Bible says these things separate them from God and they will not inherit the kingdom of God if they do these things, the Bible is not giving a vain, empty threat. The Bible is giving a clear line of how God sees our actions. And so what we see when the Bible says we can't rejoice with wrongdoing, that there is wrongdoing. And the Bible said, when the Bible says you shouldn't rejoice with wrongdoing, it means you should be smart enough, biblically solid enough, to know what wrongdoing is. 
To be aware of it. To be able to identify it and not be swayed by your culture. And when we're supposed to be rejoicing with righteousness, it means we should know what righteousness is. It should beat in our heart and in our spirit. And when we see somebody do it, like today, people getting baptized, listen, celebrate. Amen? Go, go to those folks when you see them and celebrate with them. Rejoice with them. They made a good decision. Let's celebrate that decision and let's rejoice around those things. Amen. I've been witness uh, to people uh, making an announcement on Facebook that is clearly wrongdoing. Moving in with this person or doing some action, something clearly not biblically right. And then you follow the comments. Somebody making a moral stance about who they are or what they're doing in life. And then you follow the comments. And you see Christians, Christian friends, write things under the comments like, good for you. Congratulations. So proud of you. So happy for you. Way to go. Brothers and sisters, hear me today. This should not be. No, that's the moment when we fall on our knees and pray for our friend. That's the moment we lift our voice for them and say, God, move in their life. That's the moment as if you have enough relationship with them, you call them and say, let's go talk. That's not the moment to rejoice. That's the moment to mourn. Our society today wants us to rejoice with wrongdoing. And I want to tell you with all the sincerity and love in my heart, we can't do that and love people. We can't have a love in our heart for people and their eternities if we're going to rejoice with the thing that will separate them from God for eternity. And it's our call to make a stand. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus knows what's best for us? Do you believe that his word speaks the truth about what's right and wrong? Do you believe that joy and hope and purpose are found in Jesus' name? Do you want the best for people? If we agape people, if we love people, we're going to be patient. We're going to be kind. We're going to overlook petty little wrongs that come our way. We're not going to be rude. We're not going to be boastful about ourselves. We're going to lift other people up. We're also going to look at our friends and go, brother, that just isn't right. This conversation we're in, it's just not right. What you're thinking about doing, that, <laughs> boy, you can't do that, man. That's, that's, just, that's, gonna, that's bad. Well, if that's the way you feel, you're just judging me. No, I'm just looking at what the Word says and making a clear call for your good. 
Well, I'll never talk to you again. Well, if that's the price I have to pay for telling you the truth. Be it known, I didn't walk away from you. You walked away from me. I'm standing right here. I'll be your friend forever. I'll love you forever. I'll want the best for you forever. But if you're going to be around me, I will tell you the truth. And that's, that's, I'm just telling you, that's devastatingly hard sometimes. That's just a nightmare sometimes to look at somebody that, that you really care deeply about and have to say to them, I love you so much. Now, I want to be clear about this. In, in, in Corinthians, Paul makes it very clear. For the person outside the church, you don't judge them and cut them off. They're just acting like somebody outside the church. You don't celebrate with them. You don't celebrate with them. But the person who calls themselves a believer, there comes a point in time you say, man, if you're going to act that way, you're going to talk that way, you're going to live that way. Wow. It's hard. It's, it's hard as a pastor. You have to say, uh, if you're going to do that, you, you, know, you, you, you can't sing in the choir and do that. You're being judgmental. Yeah, I, I'm making a judgment right here. You, you can't sing in the choir and live that way. Can't be in our staff and live that way. You can't, you know, serve as a, as a C2 group leader and live that way. That's hard sometimes. And guess what? Pastors didn't go into the ministry dreaming, I can't wait to throw people out of stuff. It's like talking to a teenager and they say, that teacher hates kids. Yeah, that's why they spent, you know, six years, four, six years in school getting degrees because they could work with people they hate. Yes, makes sense. Listen, our call is to help people discover Jesus. Does the love of God, love for God beat in your heart? Here's the good news. You are gifted for excellence. Remember that athlete that he's got it all? Now they look at him with a little bit of jealousy because he just has this natural ability that just kind of comes and he's fast and strong. And Listen, you are gifted for excellence. You are built right. You are strong enough. You are fast enough. You are smart enough. You, are, you have all-star ability because every ability you need to overcome the world is put in you by the Spirit of God. He empowers you. He strengthens you. And He feeds it by His Word. As you study His Word, as you know His Word, the Spirit in you gets stronger and stronger as you flesh out the truth of the Word of God. God puts it there and you're able to stand against every temptation that comes because the very Spirit of God is within you. Love God. Love mankind. And you will find eternal life and you will find a life of purpose. Amen? Amen? Today we're going to do a couple of things before we close this series. In just a minute, in fact, ushers and prayer teams, you can come on down and get ready. They're going to hand, have this card in their hands. Now, we thought about well, how, what to do with this card. We thought about you know, handing one out to everybody and, and letting you do something. But we're not, we, we decided not to do that. We, we want to challenge you to make a physical step uh, and come get one of these cards if you want one. 
So there's some people in the back, and there's going to be people down here in the front. I hope a few more are still coming. Uh, they're going to be down here in the front. And what it is, is on this card has 1 Corinthians 13. And it talks about uh, love and what it is. And it just says, I accept the agape challenge. And here's what we're challenging you to do. If you say, yep, I want to be a person who lives, as the Bible tells me to do in agape, with kindness and patience towards others. And I'm inviting the Spirit of God to speak to me and to guide me and to direct me. Then as we, as this song is sung in just a minute, I want to invite you to step out from wherever you're at You can go back to the back. There's some ushers back there. There's some down here. There's prayer teams down here. And just ask them to give you a card. You take this card. You sign the back of it. You take it home. You put it someplace where over the next month or two months, you'll see it every day. Put it on a mirror at home or on a counter at home. Someplace just to remind you, I have made a commitment. And when you see it, just pray up that prayer. God, today, help me to live these truths in the way I see the world and the way I do it. Now, why are we making you move? We want, we're challenging your flesh to say, yes, I want to do that. Not just, oh, they passed a card out to me. For you to make a decision. Now, here's the second thing. This is a different thing. We have these whiteboards here in the back, back in the back and here in the front, even some out in the entryway. And, and this is for those of you who have somebody, and you'll see things written up here already from first service, that you have somebody you're really struggling with. I mean, it, it, it should be going a lot better. The relationship should be fun, but it's really hard. And here's the pledge you're making by going and signing that board. You're, you're making the pledge, I'm going to respond in agape to this person. I'm going to respond this way to them. No matter how they act towards me, no matter what they do, I'm not going to get in the middle of that muck anymore I'm going to come above it and I'm going to respond in love for them. Now, now here's what we're telling you to do. We don't want you to come up here and write Mark Johnson on the board. Okay, please. Please. We don't want you to put a a name on the board. Here's what you put on. Uh, Mom. My brother-in-law. My co-worker. uh, You know, my cousin, my neighbor. Just put that, because we don't want want to slam anybody's name. You'll know who it is. God knows who it is. And you're just saying to God, and you're asking us over this next week to pray for you. That from this day forward, no matter how they act, you'll act as someone who Jesus is your Lord towards them. So I'm going to ask you to stand. They're going to sing this great song. Listen to it. If you want to accept the agape challenge and step out and grab one of these cards, do it. If you want to sign the board, put a name on the board and say, hey, pray for me. Come and sign those boards in the back and boards in the front. Come on down and, and get them right now. All right.